coming up in this episode. Any cacao bean is at least 55% cacao butter. So you can see how it's a lucrative trade, right? To do processing of this mm. ingredient, but then you are left with nearly dry powder. In order to make chocolate out of it, now you need to reconstitute the fats, such mm -hmm. as you know, hydrogenated palm oil, which is poison. You have to be very careful in inventing anything. Even if you do it in your garage and it has nothing to do with your job, just by having a job at the university entitles them to own your invention as long as you're working for them. The Founders Unplugged podcast, hosted by Greg McCallum. Raw, unedited conversations with entrepreneurs and startup founders. Hello, Beata. Hi, Greg. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for allowing me a few more minutes. That's all right. No worries. I know what the school run is like. It's, uh, yeah, while trying to work as well, it's a bit crazy, isn't it? It's just everybody decided that today would be a good day to have an accident. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, in a big city like Houston, sometimes you're lucky, but most of the time it's just insanity. It's a, it's a carnage on the road. <laughs> yeah. How, how selfish of them to have accidents, right? I mean, it's just, uh, <laughs> what is, what's the, what's the school runs like out there compared to the UK? Is it like just absolute madness? Does everyone drive? And it's just, yeah, and everyone then everyone's, everyone's yep. trying to, park and everyone can't get out and it's all like just a nightmare right uh so we we go to a private school so it's a little less of a nightmare but it's, ah, okay, it's nightmare nevertheless <laughs> fair enough yeah school runs are never fun i've always said i think we should be um for each year should be slightly different times and then that oh, way it'll be like, easier for everyone make, it makes sense right so yeah. it's not they did that all... during covid yeah oh yeah. yeah well you guys are a lot more uh intellectual about it than we're here <laughs> maybe maybe <laughs> uh, you're based in texas right houston texas yep yeah correct and how do you find it because how long have you been there for i've been there for 25 years 26 oh, wow. in october wow awesome so you're a texan i am a texan i grew up here i went to university of houston as an undergrad and then i took the trip overseas to do a phd in uh, biochemistry and genetic engineering and then i came back and i did another phd there was a method to my madness uh in um, uh, immunology at wow. md anderson cancer center which is right here in houston yeah yeah i was watching something recently on youtube about houston about texas sorry specifically um mostly it was related to food because i'm because like we spoke about which is what we're going to talk about in a bit I'm a, I'm a big foodie a big food fan and houston uh, texas sorry is i didn't realize just quite how like diverse it is in terms of food i mean i suppose it makes sense right but you, you've got the the mexican influence the american influence and the, apparently the philippine influence as well which i didn't realize no sorry is it filipino or vietnamese, v vietnamese uh, influence? so there you know you actually are very correct and yeah. um houston has the highest number of the restaurants per capita from really? any city in the world wow. in fact uh you can find food from every corner of every ethnicity if you want ethiopian food there is phenomenal ethiopian food there is you know 
Indian up and down, northern, southern, central, yeah. eastern, western, Chinese of all flavors. Uh, you can find Peruvian, you can find Filipino. You, I mean, Mexican is of course, uh, or what we call Tex-Mex. Tex-Mex, yeah. Is, is, is very popular. And, you know, I, I go to Mexico a lot and I can't always tell which one I like best because they're very different, but right. both are unique in its own way and very tasty. Yeah, yeah. I, needless to say, that YouTube video I was watching made me very, very hungry and makes me really want to visit Texas because it looks amazing. But um, yeah, well, maybe we can get a bit more into that in a minute. But um, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. And um, as you've noticed, we already hit record. It, that's the way we do it, right? We just get straight into it. Um, what about the only sort of thing that I ask my guests to do as like on a, on a regular basis is just one thing at the beginning, um, which is just an introduction, right? So if you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself, I know we've already started talking a little bit, but it's fine. Uh, but if you don't mind introducing yourself and the business, um, and uh, yeah, then we can get into it. Is that okay? So I'll hand it over to you. And I'll probably share my screen at the same time and show off your profile and your website and stuff as you're talking. Okay. Wonderful. Yes. So uh, my name is Dr. Beata Lerman. I am not a medical doctor. I'm a scientist. And um, so I'm a PhD biochemist and the PhD immunologist. And um, I am very passionate about health. So I started my biomedical career very early. Um, so I was born in Russia. I am uh, from the south part of Russia, bordering country Georgia. And I started um, doing science when I was 12 years old. And I got my first job in science when I was 14. So I was always very interested in understanding how human body works, what makes us sick, what makes us healthy. And uh, usually when people ask me, what do I do? I, I, I tell them that I make molecules that don't play well together, play well together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good description. Yeah. And uh, so when I came to United States at the age of 16, I, um, of course, had to learn English first because this was kind of a surprise immigration, but we were fleeing from war in Chechnya of nine, 1998 at the time. Um, I, I already graduated high school at that point, so I've never went to high school in the United States, but I um, started looking for a job and the first job I got was uh, in Texas Medical Center in the Department of Microbiology and Molecular Genetics at the lab of Dr. Dale Harold. And wow. people who don't know Dale, and a lot of people do know him. He is such a wonderful mentor. So everything I am today was because he made me a thinker I am today. He made me question everything. Uh, when the experiments weren't working, he was like, okay, let's dissect everything to, uh, was it your mistake? Was it reagents? Who made the reagents? So I'm one of those scientists who still understands why certain things are in certain places, which is uh, a rare kind nowadays because uh, everybody's working out of prepackaged kits and you have solution A or solution one and solution two and you mix them and you have no idea what's inside and it's all proprietary. And 
it makes it very difficult to really do science on a high level. So um, I'm I'm one of the last one of dinosaurs. So I started doing science in the United States in uh, 99 and 2000. So this was pre a lot of technology that we have right now. So people are familiar with PCR after COVID. And it's basically um, a technique that amplifies the DNA. And now we have all this fancy machine and you just prepare everything in a test tube and you put it in a machine and you walk away for three hours and then you come back and get your results. When I was starting, we had a different temperature water bath and we would have a timer and we would transfer the test tubes from one water bus to the other. Right. Uh, and that's probably gives off my age a little bit, which hopefully not, but um, <laughs> yeah, I've had it for a long time. Um, um, so I um, got to work on genetic engineering a little bit. So specifically I was, um, um, developing a technology of fixing mistakes in human DNA. Um, that was pre CRISPR Cas9. But mm. actually, so in Israel, um, gene therapy program has never been shut down the same way that it's been in the United States. And um, my mentor, he was actually very old at the time, even mentoring me, I think he was 82. He discovered that in the simplest of the organisms of the viruses that infect bacteria, there are certain genes that can insert specific sequences in specific places. And so we were looking at similar, not identical, but similar sequences on the human DNA and using those viral enzymes to facilitate change of defective genes of diseases like cystic fibrosis and sickle cell anemia to the correct version of that gene. And so mm. I graduated in 2008. It is sometimes it says that, you know, CRISPR technology came on the proof of concept of taking the integrase recombinase from phage Lambda, which what we were working on, CRISPR came from a different phage, and that what made it possible. Mm. But we published on it first, and then I came back to United States, and I actually, um, so I'm, I'm I'm married for ten years right now. It's a little side story, and I have a wonderful little daughter who I wouldn't trade for the world. But when I came back from Israel, I actually had no intention of ever getting married. It was not interesting to me. Uh, and I wanted to go into space program. I wanted to go into NASA and become an astronaut. Oh, wow. And uh, so I'm a scuba diver. And of course, I, am, I was born in Russia. So I'm uh, very proficient in both Russian and English and mm. do tasks in weightlessness. Yeah, it, it takes a lot of the boxes uh, needed for, for the job, definitely, yeah. And I started volunteering with um, a neutral buoyancy lab to help astronauts train and kind of get in with the people. And I actually had a stellar resume, but um, the draft for astronauts happened once every five years. Right. And so I missed the draft of 2010 and the following was 2015. And people who were mentoring me into this position, they said, well, you know what? It would really help you if you have an advanced degree from the United States. 
And I was like, well, I have time. I really don't have anything better to do. I would just go and um, get another degree and then I would check all of the boxes and I would definitely become an astronaut. Well, then life happened and uh, on my at the end of my second year, I met my husband and the, 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 the story was, I said, I would marry a guy who I would love more than I love my job. And I really did love my job. Like I would be in the lab at three in the morning, still running experiments and moving the science forwards. Mm. That, 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 that type of crazy. Um, <laughs> but, you know, he, he actually did impress me and we're still married and it's been 10 years. And, and so I traded my dream of space exploration uh, for having a family because once that decision was made, I was understanding that it would be super unfair to go into astronaut training, which is very intense, three years, you hide, hardly interact with outside world at all. Mm. Uh, but I have no regrets because among the other things, I am an avid scuba diver and um, I explore our oceans, which are said to be less explored than the space. Mm. And my favorite type of diving that I do is called blackwater diving. You actually go in the middle of the night uh, into the ocean with no lights over no bottom. Oh, so wow. bottom is like thousands of feet below. Yeah, And you watch the largest migration that happens every night a vertical migration of a deep water species that come to the surface to do their biological functions to feed to mate to like release eggs and so um i dive with this huge elaborate camera and we capture those deep water creatures and actually make discoveries all the time because either the intermittent stages of fish development or a new fish species that nobody has observed during the day. Mm. Uh, they're all come up and I think we average as a community about two new species every week. Wow, that's incredible. So um, yeah, it's, it's pretty fun. And so there is a huge community of blackwater divers um, on Facebook and Instagram and we'll all share our findings. And scientists actually come to us. Uh, sometimes they notice um, certain animals and they ask they gave us test tubes and they ask us to capture it so they can mm. check their dna and uh to my knowledge there's been about a dozen scientific papers written out of uh us just diving off the boats and exploring the oceans wonderful and that's probably as close as you can get to the experience of exploring space one hundred percent it actually yeah. even looks like space it's absolute right. dark it's absolute quiet and then all of the stuff moves around you. Mm. And at least you know there's actually life there. <laughs> so in some ways, probably a bit more going on than in space, right? Yeah, I mean, we don't know what's going on in space, but yeah. they say that space is more explored than the depths of our oceans. Yeah, yeah. Well, wonderful. And so so then, so you're working in this lab, you've, you've, you've had a family. So then what, what was the next chapter? In, uh... The next chapter was me going into uh, biomedical industry work. So yeah. I went on and I became a consultant uh, and um, a team manager for 
a biotech company called Stem Cell Technologies. And um, that's the Vancouver-based, absolutely wonderful company. And they've uh, continued to mentor and nurture me into, you know, more entrepreneurial mindset. Right. They, they were the first introduction of how the entrepreneurship game is played. Mm. So I was with them for five years. Um, actually, I never wanted to leave them. Uh, running my own company has uh, not been an aspiration back then, but I always wanted to help more people. So um, one thing that I forgot to mention out of MD Anderson, I actually um, invented two cancer immunotherapies. Um, oh which I hold patents for, and it's searchable. Uh, the agent is called Peptibody. It's um, a chimeric molecule of half peptide and half antibody. So um, it's less immunogenic, means the body will not, like the patient's body would le less reject it or not reject it as an antibody therapy because mm. antibodies are bulkier and immune system do recognize them as invaders. Uh, but at the same time, it's uh, super effective. So if I can explain just as a quick analogy, I like to say that imagine the body is uh, a medieval kingdom and you have all of these different roles that live there. There's royalty, there's army, there's peasants, all of that. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden you got an invader who started building a fortress somewhere in your kingdom. And around the fortress, they got a really, really high wall. And so once the fortress was detected and they were recognized to be invaders, the kingdom started to send their fighters against it. And first mm -hmm. they sent like the hardest armed fighters and those are your T cells. But when they're climbing that high wall with all of their, you know, weapons and ammunition they actually get exhausted and they fall off and they can't do their function that's called mm. t-cell exhaustion so then they send a lighter warrior kind of like the ninja warriors a lot lighter with the um, properties they can do that's your monocytes and granulocytes but when they climb over the wall they actually get captured and beaten down and turn into double agent they start working for the invader instead of for the kingdom and mm. those are your um, tumor-associated macrophages and other, you know, sleeping immune system that doesn't let um, the detection of the tumor by the immune system. And so um, what my uh, invention does, what my therapy does, we actually identify a unique molecule on the surface of the cells of the wall, which is called myeloid-derived suppressor cells, and it takes the wall down. And of course, you can imagine if wall is down, then all of those heavy fighters can go in and kill every last one of the invaders. Mm. That's exactly what happens in the cancer therapy. Um, right. And so the advantage of that, first of all, there is a complete remission and there is no minimal residual disease. So none of those invaders could like hide somewhere because right those t-cells are so and, and, uh, and from my understand and from my understanding sorry that that that's that's one of the biggest issues with with cancer treatments is that there are exactly. usually res residual um cancer cells remaining and, and it just starts all over again 
Exactly. And so, and so this is where, you know, my fascination with molecules come. And uh, mm. as I say, we're all very complex molecular Legos. And mm. now switching into food, everything that we bring into our body are molecules because we are molecules. We don't look like molecules. We don't look like Lego blocks, but we are. Mm -hmm. And everything that we um, ingest, inhale, uh, put on our skin, interacts with our own system in one of three ways, positive, neutral, or negative. And when we go to food, um, especially ultra-processed food, that's more often than not, probably like 99.9% .9 of time, negatively interact with all of the systems of the body. So uh, I had my run at stem cell and I actually wanted to um, go in into clinical uh, science and learn how the clinical trials and compliance work. So I could go back to my favorite stem cell and actually uh, become a vice president or a manager of the um, technologies that would be used for human benefit, not just for research, but to actually treat diseases. And uh, I went to the company called Medimmune uh, and I became a medical science liaison. Medical science liaison, uh, what they do is they um, observe the clinical trials and then they go and explain clinical trials to medical doctors. So they're not sales reps. They, um, uh, as a medical science liaison, we are obligated to um, give fair and balanced information means that if we talk about benefits, we have to talk about adverse events. If we talk about dangers, we have to also talk about mechanisms. So um, that was my first glimpse into the world of how healthcare is being distributed mm -hmm. and how much do doctors really deeply understand about diagnoses and treatments and options and how they make decisions. And from there, uh, I went in to actually um, advise clinical trials from late preclinical stages into um, phase three. And that's where COVID found me. And so right. even though I was working on cancers and autoimmunity, I think a lot of uh, doctors and biologists you talk about, you talk to, would tell you that regardless of what their focus and profession is, when COVID started, everybody turned into something COVID related. Right, right. So I was uh, put in uh, charge of consulting and overseeing the COVID vaccine trial that um, was happening here in Methodist Hospital in Houston. And basically that's where I got really burnt out because it was a very uncertain time. And regardless of what, how and what you feel about that time, people didn't have a lot of information. Scientifically, it was a mess. Mm -hmm. Like as a scientist, we're supposed to uh, design, form a hypothesis, design an experiment, have proper pro positive and negative control, and report data. Uh, it was not like that. 
Mm. It was very messy. There was uh, constant. I felt. I felt like there was constant stress and fear mongering, and you know, uh, discussions of grandiose proportions, which you know didn't materialize. But as on the ground consultants, we were actually advising against certain decisions. And then, you know, two years later, turns out that we told them so, they just didn't listen. But in between, um, I would say January 2020 until July 2021, uh, it was part of my job to know everything about COVID that there was. So I was reading a lot of other trials and other researchers from Europe, from all over the world. And actually, there were some really bright ideas about you know approaching that virus that just got shut down um europe actually did pretty well for themselves uh, so did israel but eventually they just got outcompeted mm. and probably outfunded but being an ethical scientist and um as i said i'm one of the last ones who really cared about true science maybe it's not maybe i'm wrong I, I would love to be wrong but i just couldn't do it anymore i mm. I, I didn't like the lies i didn't like the fear mongering i didn't like you know the control and blowing things out of the proportion and with the blessing of my husband because i was making a lot of money um you know advising the trials even even in immune oncology and autoimmunity um he said if you not if you're not happy leave and you'll find your next you you'll you'll find your path and something to mm. do and i did and while i was searching for my path there is also a side where in the late 2018 i was diagnosed with uh, lymphoma with cutaneous t-cell lymphoma uh cancer myself and it was very ironic because um the department which i did my phd in was lymphoma and myeloma right. and of course I, I i had my daughter was i think 14 15 months at the time maybe a little longer maybe a little older uh no 14 months yeah uh and my husband just freaked out he's like what am i gonna do please don't die the person who was not freaked out was me and i said well mm. you know i actually happened to literally write a dissertation in lymphoma yeah so what i will do is i will go to um so my phd advisor is um in california now so um i didn't want to go and bother him i went to um my vice chair of committee and at md anderson and i basically said can you get me my uh my invention my peptibodies and if i need to isolate it just give me your lab there is an hplc machine i can make my own uh, and and he said you know there is 70 percent of md anderson is working on your invention we have plenty mm. so my phd advisory and supervisory committee became my care team wow. for my cancer and i got immunotherapy as a first line when it's not typically done but mm. 
there are perks of being an inventor of something. Of course, yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, um, I, I walked away, I would say cancer-free. It has not surfaced for last five years. And we monitor continuously. We're doing liquid biopsy when uh, in the blood they're looking for circulating, circulating tumor cells. And it can be like one or two cells in like 30 milliliters of blood. Mm. So, um, but there are technology to detect it and they're not there. Mm. So it's, it, it's, it's an interesting story that you don't hear very often, but one of my passion is also helping regular people navigate the healthcare system. And especially if they're cancer patients and they're looking for, um, additional, um, second opinion. Uh, arming them with the information and questions of how to talk to their doctors if mm -hmm. they are unhappy with just chemo and radiation that is a standard protocol. And some people can afford to pay consulting fees to me and I'm happy about it. And some people can't and I help them anyway because um, I, I really care. Maybe I shouldn't, but I really do care about people. No, I think... No, I think you should. I think that's a, that's a good good thing to you know a good uh, a good fault to have is to care too much. Definitely, I think that's a great thing. But as part of my recovery from my cancer, um, I knew as an immunologist that the only cells that use sugar to grow and divide are cancer cells. Every other cell in the body can use alternative fuel, and so because I want to see my daughter grow up and I don't want to scare my husband to death again, uh, I decided to cut out sugar out of my life entirely. So I'm, I've been on ketogenic lifestyle and people can uh, scream and yell all they want, like this is dangerous, it doesn't work. A lot of things don't work, including pharmaceuticals, if you do them wrong. Mm. But if you really understand the core and what is being targeted and how to do it, you can actually very happily live without carbs because mm -hmm. uh, so I wear a continuous glucose monitor. I'm on the long sleeves today, but it's on my arm. And by that, I can see that my body produces all of the sugar it needs when I don't eat it. Because sometimes I actually first thing in the morning, like around eight in the morning and I don't eat breakfast, I see that spike in my blood glucose levels. Mm -hmm. And that's because my liver actually generates the sugars that it needs to get me going in the morning. So um, there is a biochemical mechanism. So I uh, went off sugar, um, detox from it. It was, it was like, uh, I would imagine uh, I've never done any kind of substances, but I've observed people who were detoxing of like alcohol or heavier drugs. And it, it felt exactly like that. Like right. everything hurts. You wallow in self-pity. You don't like you're intolerable for a few weeks <laughs> and then it passes and <laughs> magical things happen, including your cancer don't grow because it has no food. Um, and, but, you know, actually cutting out sugars meant I cut out every dessert that's prepared in the world today, mm. because all of it contains just crazy amount of those refined sugars and 
high fructose corn syrup and glucose syrup. And there is actually 23 names to poison. And, you know, so sometimes uh, people would tell me, oh, I don't use sugar. I use agave syrup. And I just go like this. <laughs> like, it's the same thing. It's sugar. <laughs> yeah. Your body doesn't care what the marketing team called it. Yeah. The metabolism of those things, date syrup, uh, agave, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, other thing that people really love, um, coconut, coconut sugar. It's mm -hmm. like all, all, all the same. I'm actually yeah. writing a book right now about this, about the other names of the sugar that the industry is using and hides the fact that it's just full of sugar. Mm. Sugar, sugar. It doesn't really matter too much. I think <laughs> to the body, sugar, sugar. It's, right. Um, it, it doesn't care that it's it's white sugar cane sugar that's refined. It doesn't care. It's, it's just the fact that it's sugar, right? Exactly. Mm. Um, and so um, as I left um, my stressful COVID job, being a cancer survivor, I was like, well, I have plenty of time plenty of time on my hands now. Uh, why don't I actually try to see if I can make my favorite desserts without sugar? Because here I am on the keto lifestyle. I love to cook. Um, so I cook for my family. I've always done it. We hardly ever go to the restaurant. Um, I was like, I'm going to try to figure out how to make the desserts keto. Mm. I would take the existing recipes from like keto cookbooks and uh, I would build on that. So recipe to me is protocol. Protocol is scientific. Protocols are there as a guidelines. They were there yeah, to, yeah. Be to be explored. Yeah. But, you know, one thing that I was really missing out of my life since I went through, uh, on the really, really low carb diet or lifestyle is really not a diet. Diet is everything that you ingest um, was chocolate because I can tell you there was no exam, no conference, no uh, scientific paper that I written that was not done on a diet of a seafood and chocolate. <laughs> dried, salted dried fish and chocolate. Oh, really? What an interesting Literal. combination. What, together? or <laughs> No, first fish and then chocolate. Okay, right. Yeah, yeah. And I was sitting there. I knew nothing about chocolate. Mm. Like, zero. I had no idea how it's made. Um, but I, I love eating it. And And the first thought that came into my mind is... If I took a hundred percent chocolate, how do I sweeten it? Mm. Like, can I sweeten it with anything other than sugar? And even if it's with the sugar, how do you sweeten it? So I actually started playing with the chocolate in my own personal lab, which I have in the house. And um, first thing I did, so I have this. Um, natural sweetener, natural sugar alternative that I import from France. And it's made out of organic apples and pears. And I was like, how do I dissolve this? Do I dissolve it in water and like very constant? So, so that was my 
very first experiment that failed horribly because back then I didn't think about it. Now it makes complete sense that when sugar, uh, sorry, chocolate is fat. Like there is nothing else. There's fat and solids that make the chocolate nothing else. There is mm. no aquatic function to it. And so when you add water to the chocolate, it actually curls and it mm -hmm. becomes this um, kind of cottage cheesy. Yeah, yeah, splits, yeah. Yeah, it looks horrible, tastes horrible. So I've tried it and it was very bad. And, I, and the scientist in me was like, but why didn't it work? Mm -hmm. So I started to learn about chocolate and I started to read and... Um, I realized that the only way you sweeten the chocolate is you take those that machine that has this rolling granite stones, it's called a melanger, and you actually put the chocolate with the sweetener of choice, and it grinds it down to a certain size particle and coats that particle in cacao butter, which is naturally in cacao, and that's how you sweeten it. There is no other way. There, you, wow. there's no syrup you can invent. You can't like just dissolve something. It doesn't work. So I bought my very first trial Mellinger and I, um, I was like, okay, so I'm taking somebody else's chocolate, which is hundred percent and I'm melting it and I'm mixing it with the, with the sweetener. But what, what's in this chocolate? How is the chocolate made? And so uh, I started to um, read the information from the chocolate makers. So what I didn't know, and I think maybe you, you do, or uh, if you don't, you're going to find it fascinating. The world of chocolate is split into two categories. There are chocolatiers, which most people are familiar with because they make all of this amazing, beautiful things out of chocolate. And there is chocolate makers. And chocolate makers are actually the one who take the cacao beans and they turn it into the chocolate mass, which then they just solidify and sell to chocolatiers. Most of the time, chocolate makers have no interest in crafting chocolate and chocolatiers know nothing about chocolate making. Mm. So very rarely you get both. And usually it's with... Um, like a bean to bar kind of um, boutique chocolate shops. Mm. Well, so I started looking for the chocolate that I can craft going into chocolatier round. But the truth of the matter was most of the chocolate that was clean, that um, the ingredients were compliant with my lifestyle was completely unpalatable. And it was unpalatable, not because it was not sweet enough. It was too sweet. It, oh, really? Okay. It's, it's very easy to mess up a chocolate on a uh, sugar substitute when you don't know what you're doing. Mm. Uh, and then uh, anything that was actually really palatable and you'd be like, but, okay, this is decent. Then you look at the... Um, at the ingredients, like we have this brand called Unreal, and it's like little four squares, maybe 12 grams. And they have like 
six grams of sugar. And I'm like, there's nothing unreal about that. Mm. Totally real. Makes sense. Mm. Yes, it's not eight grams of sugar, but it's still a lot. Yeah. I, I mean, my, my daily allowance is about 12 to 15 grams of carbs from all sources. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, that includes like vegetables and maybe an occasional fruit. But it's it's not a lot. Like mm. a couple of those unreal candies and I can't eat anything. Mm. And so I started to think, well, where do you get cacao beans from? How do they grow? And we went to Costa Rica and we found a farm, a cacao farm. And the farmer was very generous to show us what cacao beans look like and what they're taste like. And by the way, cacao is a fruit and it has this white pulp that surrounds the, 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 the beans, which are the seeds. And it's very sweet with chocolatey aftertaste. It's amazing. It's amazing mm. to eat. And so I started to learn that actually a good cacao is a fermented product. So once they pick the cacao beans, they take the, um, the skins off and skin is very thick and um, they ferment the beans similar to coffee mm. in um, in the pulp of the cacao and all of the fruity notes and sweetness and you know all of these different um, flavors actually infuse into a bean through the through the pulp that was once surrounding it and so usually a fermentation process is between three and seven days, depending on what you're trying to do. And then they dry it. And then they either roast it or they send it to a cho the chocolate maker and the chocolate maker has the roasters and um, right. continues to prepare the chocolate to become um, the final product. Unfortunately, what happens most of the time is those cacao beans get very, very processed. And the reason for that is any cacao bean is at least 55% cacao butter. And cacao butter is very, very expensive commodity. It's uh, very sought after in cosmetic industry, in, um, in different chemical industries. So if you take the beans, for example, out of Cameroon or Ghana, and they're around um, $2 a kilo or like a dollar a pound, uh, when you press out that cacao butter, then that cacao butter can be sold for $20 a pound right. or $40 a kilo. Mm. So you can see how it's a lucrative trade right to do processing of this mm. ingredient but then you are left with nearly dry powder um so in order to make chocolate out of it now you need to reconstitute the fats and the fats that usually being reconstituted for is hydrogenated vegetable fats such mm -hmm. as you know, hydrogenated palm oil which is poison or like hydrogenated different vegetable oils which is also poison, but it gets solid. But it doesn't get solid quite like the cacao butter because cacao butter is actually um, 
polymorphic saturated fat and when it's at the room temperature it's really like a rock it snaps you you have to use a pretty thick blade to shed it off if you get it in a block vegetable oils would never be that solid they're kind of margarine solid and mm. so the ultra processed chocolate industry adds a whole bunch of ingredients to make it solid and palatable but they add things like um, soy lecithin. Uh, they call it an emulsifier, but in reality, it's a detergent. So every time you eat processed chocolate and it contains so soy lecithin, mm. it does to the GI tract and the intestines exactly like what the detergent does. And oh. um, I, I when I have the tastings, like play with your food kind of type of tastings here at the factory, uh, at my chocolate factory. If you are enjoying this episode, please subscribe, like, and share your thoughts in the comments. I let them get and squirt a little bit of um, soy lecithin into water and shake the bottle, and they would see all of the little bubbles that you get. Mm. When you add the detergent to things. Wow. So anyways, uh, I wanted none of that. I wanted to stay healthy and beat my cancer and never be bothered by it again. Mm. So I started to reach out to all of these different cacao farmers. And first of all, asking them about their practices. What I wanted to have is absolute natural organic cacao. Uh, means without pesticides, without any kind of additives. The trouble in the world of growing cacao is actually there is a fungal disease that kills the fruit, not the tree, but the fruit that's on the tree. And so what usually happens if farmer lets it go too long and it's organic, that within 12 hours, the fruit would be covered in this real thin white film, which would be a fungal growth. And, uh, and what's inside would be ruined, so they would not be able to use it anymore. Right. So uh, the majority of cacao is commodity that's grown in Africa. Africa grows about 75% of all cacao trades, and that's between Ivory Coast, Ghana, and Cameroon. They have crops that are genetically engineered, so they can spray them, dust them, not worry about letting them grow too long. But there is another problem with that, which recently surfaced, is because all of those pesticides uh, that they're being sprayed with are full with uh, heavy metals like lead and cadmium. And it's actually been known since way back in 2008, the American um, Confectioner Association has issued a memo that guys, you need to do something about all of this cadmium and lead in the soil because when we refine the chocolate, it breaks them apart into particles and it releases all of those heavy metals and people get toxic effect. Mm. Like they get the headaches or, you know, the, the vertigos and things like that after eating chocolate. Like you're supposed to feel good, but you feel heavy because mm. um, the symptoms of heavy metal poisoning. So being aware of all of that, of course, this is this is pre-seamless treats. Uh, I'm still trying to solve my own problem. Mm. I was like, I want to have the most organic 
cacao beans that I can lay my hands on. So I started visiting farms and I specifically in Costa Rica at the time. Uh, and I started to ask them about uh, if they would be willing to take this scientific journey with me and, um, you know, experiment with different, different times, different um, um, fermentation processes and all of those different things. Of course, they knew what they were doing. I didn't know what I was doing, but it was so fun to do. Mm. So we would ferment the cacao in uh, wrapped in um, wild banana leaves out of the Costa Rican rainforest. And we would go between four days, five days, six days, seven days. And I would take the samples and send them to the lab for different uh, micronutrient and phytochemicals and amino acid analysis. And uh, we found that six days of fermentation, so just slightly under-fermented, gives the most amount of phytonutrients that would be beneficial to the body. Mm -hmm. so when people come here who know chocolate and been in chocolate for a while and they try the beans, just the raw beans, they're like, this is under-fermented. And I would say, you're right, but this is the best health quality of the chocolate like this is food as medicine stuff right so anyways uh and then amazing thing happened uh we were contacted by a farm from ecuador and they said that they have a very unique uh type of cacao that's called cacao nacional or also known as original dna cacao so those cacao variety was thought to be extinct until as recently as 2012. And in 2013, a small number of those trees were found in Ecuadorian rainforest and uh, confirmed by plant geneticists. And the local farmers decided to bring it back from the brink of extinction and start cultivating it. But it takes on average five years for a cacao farm to start producing the cacao. And so they contacted me in, 20, in, in the late 2021. So they've had it already growing in 2019. So I took my family and we went to Ecuador and we went onto that farm and saw their processes. So because, so it's the same cacao that Mayans and, you know, Aztecs used to use in their ceremonial chocolate drinks. Mm. And I was really, really impressed with the flavor. And because they're original DNA and it's like a wild cacao sword, no chemicals ever touch it. And so what happens when they cultivate that cacao is we wake up really early around 5.30 in the morning and we get on the buggy and we start driving around the entire farm because that's not monocrop farm. It's actually very uh, organically position the trees right. amongst like other food trees, nut trees, because like coffee, cacao would absorb all of the flavors of other plants that grow around it. Mm -hmm. So they have a lot of like um, uh, hanging things. They would have more earthy taste. If they have fruit trees, they would have fruity notes. And so they 
they don't just destroy everything and just monocrop cacao. They grow it the same way they used to grow in the rainforest. Mm. And um, what we look for in the morning is the cacao fruits that are turning color. So cacao pods can start out any color and end up any color. It can start purple and end, end yellow. It can start green and end yellow or red or purple. It, oh, really? Like okay. Different varieties uh, actually really can, they can be any color. But the way you know that the pod is right is actually when they finish the transformation from one color to another. And so they watch which ones are finishing the transformation because at the evening run, they will be picking those cacao fruits and then, you know, opening them up and fermenting them. Because if they let it go until the following morning, the fungus would already get them. Right. So the result, actually the most aromatic cacao with phenomenal taste qualities. It starts out very fruity and rich, but not very astringent. So just very, very pleasant experience. Uh, and there are a few farms in Costa Rica that also farm the um, cacao nacional. So I eventually found them. And now I work exclusively with that um, cacao beans to make my chocolate. And then people ask me, well, uh, you know, it's sugar-free. What do you sweeten it with? And it's always a fun question to answer because uh, industry, the food processing industry, did a great job just uh, misleading people and feeding them all kinds of um, false narratives mm. that... I can see breaking every time we have that conversation. And so I tell them, we sweeten it with stevia. And immediately after that, I say green stevia and not white stevia. Because if I asked a person, what is stevia? What color is stevia? They're like, oh, it's those packets. It's white. I put it in my coffee. And I usually tell them, please don't. Right. Throw it away. It's poison. Because stevia is a plant. It's actual, it, it looks exactly like mint. It's this tall, has the leaves. Actually, very, very similar, similar to leaves, to a mint. And um, the sweetening agent in stevia is called uh, glycoside, steviol glycoside. And so uh, as any thing that comes out of a plant, Stevia, steviol is not water soluble. So, you know, some people take dietary supplements, right? So a little side track. Um, we all know that turmeric is a phenomenal, phenomenal dietary supplement for immune system. But a lot of people don't know that if they take that peel of turmeric and they chase it with water, it would actually fall out like a brick powder. It will come in and out absolutely unchanged and won't do anything for okay. Okay. Hmm. so people take uh turmeric they actually have to chase it with something fatty either have it in a little shot of 
half and half or better cream or a yogurt like so it has to be some kind of fat so it needs a fat protein to bind to bind it, to exactly it's a delivery system so right. th those um phytonutrients cannot enter cell without fat being present interesting okay so the same thing is with stevia stevia is green and not white Stevia is 250 times sweeter than sugar. You cannot use Stevia one-to-one. -one. Mm. In fact, uh, because we, we have Stevia here, I usually let people experience, and it would be like a tiny um, speck like this, and they would put it in their mouth, and the sweetness would be overwhelming. Mm. Now they like, this is Stevia. Stevia doesn't have aftertaste. Mm. despite the popular belief it's it's a plant it's very clean um and um you cannot sweeten it's it's not water soluble basically i i do this dozens of times a week when when i have people here i would give them a glass of water and some of that stevia and i would let them steer it all day in fact we will start with one in all of the following meetings that I have, they keep steering it and it keeps falling out. Mm. This is why stevia, real stevia is so phenomenal for sweetening chocolate because chocolate is fat. It actually yeah. dissolves in fat. But because it's 250 times sweeter than sugar, we also need the bulking agent. And that would not be like a dextran or sucralose or anything else that suppresses the immune system and cause cancer as per scientific articles that has been published and it's been recently published, it's easy to find. We bulk it up with chicory. And chicory is a plant, is um, the little blue flower. I'm sure you have it, We ha even we have it in Texas. And the root of chicory is about 25% sweetness of sugar. It is a full fiber. Uh, and so we combine stevia and chicory in a combination that's actually pleasant. And it tastes exactly like the sugary variety. People mm. cannot tell the difference. And this is when, you know, you play with molecules and you get them to do what you want, even though um, they originally were not intended to interact that way. I'm going uh, to just put your website up. Um because I think anyone watching, because people will be listening and watching to this. If you're just listening, go to sinlesstreats.us and you'll see, and the link will be in the description as well. But, uh, you know, you, you've also, I mean, this is to me where science, and and by the way, I should just say, like, before I say what I was going to say, you've you've been talking about, you know, your, your history and, and your journey and everything for a little while. And I've just got to point out, like, you, you are by far one of the most interesting people I've ever met. Um, like, <laughs> you, you. you know, you, you've done so much and you're so accomplished and, you know, there's, I've got a million questions I want to ask. And, and I feel like we probably should have made this, this recording session like four hours long because there's just not enough time. So we're going to have to do more. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to say that before before I went into this. But looking at, you know, chocolate um, and the company you've created in the streets and the, the, the variety of products you've got on here, I think it's safe to say that you've found basically the, the bridge between um science and art right and like it, it's it's 
not not just because of the fact that it looks the way it does, which is astounding, but just your approach to it is incredibly refreshing. Like you just said there about using chicory and steva and chocolate and combining those three things. Like like you said, no one had thought of combining those things before, but you you've taken a scientific approach to it that is just mind blowing. Like it, you know, I I don't I don't think anyone would have, have have thought of that before. And like I said, I've got a background in in chefing and, and I, I actually looked into um, I was very close to becoming a chocolatier because I was studying in France and needed a potentially an area to specialize in and um, and I know for certain that any of the people I would have spoke to there would have just said this is how you do it this is how it's always been done don't deviate right <laughs> you know so uh, you're absolutely right and you know it's funny because I to this day and I've been doing chocolate for two years I haven't had a formal class on chocolatiering right and at first but, that's, I, but if you want to innovate in something that wouldn't be useful exactly you know? so. I, and it, at first i felt inadequate because you know that sometimes you know before you figure out how to temper and do this and do that mm. certain things don't work consistently and so i was i was feeling a little lacking but mm. at the same time exactly what you said what if i went and i learned and they told me this is how you do it and mm. every other thing is wrong and i would never even try i would yeah. never even gone this direction i felt i was unlimited in imagination when right. i just decided to invent reinvent the chocolate yeah you weren't you weren't <laughs> shackled by by the preconceived you know notions of what it was to make chocolate in the same way that by the sounds of it throughout your career you've taken a very similar approach you know in that you're talking about how as a scientist you you were trained and mentored in a way that was very much to uh, approach the problem in a true scientific way right and so so then when you're presented with things from a scientific basis you you're you're really going in at the ground level without without the the, the preconceptions or any potential biases which is what science should be right whereas Absolutely. Whereas if someone is being trained in a very specific area of science to focus on one maybe very specific part of the scientific process, the requirements there are just for them to repeat that process over and over again and to be good at that without giving them the full spectrum of how to or to even question why they're doing it in the first place, which That's means you don't breed innovation. You're just you just got a, a robot, right? So you're, that, you're right. You're right. Yes. And, you know, this is what breaks my heart mm. in w when I see, uh, you know, the graduate students of today and tomorrow, because we got so commercialized, we got so entrenched in, you know, other companies making money that nobody's asking questions. What am I putting there? Why am right. I putting there? Right. What does it do? What would happen if I put less? What would happen if I put more? Mm. You know, I was lucky, as I said, uh, this all compliments to Dr. Dale Harold, and he was uh, here at in Houston, and then he was at NIH for a long time. But he created thinkers, and I would mm. forever be grateful to him for everything he's done for me. That that's a really interesting choice of words because I was thinking that literally a few seconds ago that the, I think the biggest problem in in a lot of fields especially in the field of science but I think across the board is we don't my dad used to always say to me that teachers don't teach you how to 
to to think. They just teach you the subject. And 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 he but he was you know a very strange man. He he was a very anti-establishment. But he had a point, which is you know school isn't a place for intelligent people. It's just a place for you to learn something, um, mm -hmm. how it's done in a specific way. And the value of being taught how to learn, or the value of being taught how to think, are incredibly valuable. And and doesn't happen that often, you know. Um, which is I think maybe the difference between. You definitely see it, I think, in higher education levels. When you go to university, you're generally being taught critical thinking. But even then, the difference between, you know, like a, a state-funded uh, institution versus a privately funded, hugely different, right? They, they, they now, yes. now they're really teaching you to just figure things out. It's like, here's the bare bones. Now go and figure it out. You know, learn to, to question everything and question yourself. Question us. You know, we don't know. You know, and, and, that's, and that's hugely lacking across a lot of fields and professions i agree i am i would be very proud of uk if you guys really starting to see that um dynamics where mm. you know students kids are giving opportunity to go and figure it out and yeah. they're saying question us in the us it's not like that mm. in the us it's like don't question us right, just right. do what we say yeah, and, I, I, you know, I, I understand that there are definitely some issues in the, at the university level in the States where there's a certain amount of indoctrination going on when it comes to certain topics, which is a bit concerning. But I think the UK has always been quite proud of its, its educational institutions, at, especially at the university level, of, of trying to breed the, the next, version, the next um, generation of, of, of thinkers. Of, of, you know. So, yeah, there are some universities that manage that in the UK. I'm sure there are in the States, too. But, um, yeah, yeah, and I'm sure they exist. It's just I haven't crossed that bridge yet. My my daughter is turning six on Monday, so right. we still have a a long way to go. But um, I mean, she's in a private school for a reason. Yeah, yeah. I I need her to learn how to form a hypothesis and test the hypothesis because you know one thing that I don't hear very often here. And even in, in the scientific communities, the words, I don't know. Yeah. And um, yeah. those words are very powerful and very important. And they're powerful not because you say, I don't know, I'm stupid. Is we haven't figured it out. So let's think how we can know that. And that yeah. has to be, it, it, it happens with, as you said, with many disciplines. And there is actually, I see it a lot more in the biomedical industry. I mean, that's all I can talk about because I come out of that. I'm a, I'm a product of uh, biomedical, academic and industry establishment. But for example, when I was a medical science liaison uh, or you know, clinical trial coordinator, telling somebody, I don't know, let me find out and get back to you was not frowned upon. In fact, if you were at the interview and they asked you a question and you tried to BS your way out of it, yeah. you would not get a job. Mm. You would be a lot safer to say, I don't know. Here is where I'm going to look and here is when I'm going to get back to you. And that humility actually kind of unlimits you to grow. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would say it's the same thing in the corporate world, exactly the same thing. And it's advice that I give to a lot of founders, for example, when they're seeking investment, 
they ask me time and time again if an investor asks me a question i don't know the answer to i'm gonna look like an idiot i need to prepare i need to learn everything i'm like no 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 don't worry about that shit. just go you know have the meeting and if you're asked and you don't know the answer just say i don't know i will look into it and i will get that to you asap humidity is a very important thing you're absolutely right i talk about this a lot um on on this show but my son um he's eight years old we've got we've got two a, a newborn and an eight-year-old and um he uh long story short um from from a different mother uh he lives with us he moved in at four years old um after my wife and I just got married, we suddenly inherited a four-year-old full-time, right? And there were some behaviors uh, there that we're still battling with due to his early childhood, which you know I won't go into detail of, but let's just say it ingrained some difficult behaviors. And one of the behaviors that, that among the, all of them, which, because obviously kids are incredibly complex, as human beings are incredibly complex, is this idea of learning, right? And, and you know, kids like to, especially if they're lacking confidence or, or want attention, they're very keen to seem like they know everything and they, they don't want to admit that they're wrong or admit that they don't know something. And so um, I talked to him a lot about this. And one thing that I decided to do about a year ago was let him use this computer, so the computer I'm on now, which was built for um, quite complex uh, tasks like 3D rendering and things like that. That was the idea why I built it. And um, let him use computer software program called Blender, which is a 3D, uh, 3D rendering tool. Quite complex, right? You know, quite a complex tool. And the idea is I let him use it and I put a YouTube um, tutorial on and I said, figure it out. That was the idea. The idea being make mistakes, keep making them and slowly but surely get better. Mm -hmm. And Within six months, he managed to make a fully three-dimensional animated donut, right? Wow. And he he messed it up like six times. He lost all of his work. He he, you know, he got really frustrated. He wanted to give up. But I think in that moment, and this I don't want to you know be too big-headed about you know my 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 uh, my goals as a, or, or achievements as a father, but I think there's so much more learned in that than than a year of sitting in a fucking, you know. English class with 20 other kids looking at a board, you know, uh, you know, there's so much more learned in that in terms of humility and the skill set. And like you said, just the, the willingness or, or you know, uh, ability to just say, I don't know something. So much mm -hmm. more learned in that and exploration than anything else. But I'm curious, though, whilst we're talking about all of this, do you agree, though, that there is still there is an important amount of reverence to be had by people who have done things before? Because you, you also you don't want to you know, especially in the scientific community, there are people who make discoveries, yourself included. The last thing you want is for everyone to try and always constantly reinvent the wheel, right? So where's the line between encouraging people to question things and do things themselves, but at the same time appreciate the wisdom that has gone before? Well, to me, in a way, it's, it's a difference between the fact and opinion, right? Right. So if... An invention is fundamental, like electricity, like the second, the first, second, and third laws of thermodynamics, like, you know, uh, like microchips, like, mm. you know, AI right now, something that is fundamental and it's evolving, but it's correct. Like, you cannot go back to the days without cell phone mm. you know you you take that and you build on that but if it's 
still an opinion, right? Somebody said it. There is no, it hasn't been proved as a hypothesis. It's still in, in the formation stage. I think that's where, you know, th there's space to innovate and take the lead. Mm. Uh, let's go back to chocolate, right? Chocolate has been invented hundreds of years ago. I mean, mm. probably thousands. Mayans use chocolate in their, you know, ceremonies to their gods. Mm. And chocolate used to be very, very, very expensive. Like only, you know, royalty and high members of society could afford it. What happened through the ages, you know, especially since the 50s, 1950s, chocolate became a product. It wasn't chocolate anymore. It was a chocolate product, which is, you know, for you would understand as a chef and potentially could have been an inspiring chocolatier because stuff has been done to it. Mm. Was it done to improve it? Uh, definitely improve the bottom lines of companies that did it. Right. But what happened to health? You know, to me, you have to look at the ripple effects. And this is what I'm teaching my five, soon to be six-year-old now. When you make a decision, when you when you make an action, think, you know, the first level that's going to be affected by the second level, the third level. Think as far as you can. Develop those scenarios. Mm. Live through them. Choose the best one. What are the ripple effects of those decisions? Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, as I said, like, you know, let's take Elon Musk, right? He invented an, a first electric car that was mass produced. Well, he was not who invented it first. It was actually invented before in the Gerald Ford's time, mm. but they shelved it. Mm. But, but it was a fundamental discovery that he probably looked at. He's a very smart guy, mm. but he made it possible and widely available. And that's actually, I feel that's the difference between the entrepreneurs who make it and who don't. It's not that their idea is bad. And, you know, when they say that 90% of companies, the startups are closing, it's not because the idea is bad idea most of the time is good it's the execution and the path the steps that you need to take and resources that either were there or were not and either made it or broke it mm -hmm. so i feel that if somebody is out there and they're building a company on a solid foundation and there are you know innovating the next iteration of that and there is a real need that's what i didn't know when i was starting my company as i well i need chocolate without sugar that would taste great because i i'm very picky i have very high standards and then i was like well while it tastes great i want it to look great i i want to be happy looking at it Mm. biting into it i want it to be an experience on all levels of senses mm. but for me uh so i i did that mistake and i'm i'm kind of proud of it but you know if if, if there is a new entrepreneurs listening to this don't do what i did 
explore if there is a niche. Right. It just happens to be that everybody loves chocolate and it <laughs> came out of pandemic and people with the metabolic syndrome had the worst outcome. So everybody's trying to cut sugar now. Mm. Um, but if you're innovating in anywhere else, even in closing, even I feel like the world is so saturated right now that you really need to find the gap in the field. Mm. And then take what's been fundamental in that and maybe forgotten and build on that mm. did that answer the question yeah kind of yeah i mean i think what that what's interesting that like, again i've got so many questions i want to ask you about a lot of the things you've said but what, what i find just as an observation what i find really interesting is a common theme of some of the people i'm speaking to in this series um who have entered into an area that they originally weren't familiar with i've spoken with a couple now so you with chocolate and a couple with like other things. And what's interesting is their approach is very lateral to that as a consequence, like we've talked about. And it feels like almost that's 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 needed. And you said, you know, maybe don't make the same mistake you made. But the thing is, like, like you said to your own admission, you didn't really go into this really with the idea of starting a business, right? You were yeah. just like, oh, I'm curious. I've got some time to kill. Like, I don't have anything on at the moment. I want I want to see if this is even possible. So I suppose, I mean, it was a happy accident that you, maybe you fell into, the, you know, discovering that there was a business to be had here. Um, so I suppose, you know, anyone who's maybe going down that path, who's just curious about fixing a problem, that I wouldn't say necessarily stop doing that because if one day you might decide to build a business, like I think explorationist and curiosity is still a very important thing and clearly a part of who you are. But But I do have to ask you though, because of you talking about this is both hugely exciting and hugely depressing at the same time. <laughs> because, because what it, I think we both know that everything you've discovered about chocolate and, you know, the fact that it's, you know, like you said, it goes through all these different processes. It's, it's basically not chocolate anymore by the time we consume it. That same process is happening to every single food item in in the supermarket pretty much right correct um so i mean that's hugely terrifying that like it's it's exciting that you are out there doing this for chocolate but it's equally terrifying that there isn't another 100,000 entrepreneurs or founders approaching the same issue with every ever single food that there is going on our tables and into our bodies right like how do we address that problem on a, on a bit more you know? of a scale I I think your question and this issue is directly related to what we were just talking about previously. Right. And, you know, I think that um, I will give you a little insight about scientists. Mm. And scientists are people who invent as as a part of their self. Scientist is not, is not a profession, is the way of thinking. Mm. And sometimes scientists invent just because, and their invention has no place either on the market yet, it, it just market is not ready for it, or at all. Mm. And it's a question of the resources. And, and I've seen it in academia extensively, but I also have seen it in um, industry science when a technology would be invented and then it would be given to the salespeople and they cannot sell it because mm. nobody wants it. 
nobody cares for it but you know a a ceo gave a green light for millions of dollars to be put into development of this and now they can't recoup it so to me it's a question of resources people should absolutely innovate but there will be a cost to that um to, to that decision as to yeah. everything there is a cost to every decision and i absolutely there was nothing that would make me happier than seeing the world reverting more to the natural way going away from the processed food processed food is the reason of majority of chronic progressive uh, diseases that did not exist 50 years ago we did not see type 2 diabetes in kids. We did not see kidney failure. We, we did not see so much Alzheimer's and dementia and Parkinson's. Mm. This is all a result of having those, you know, unstable shifty molecules interacting with ours, replacing solid building blocks in our hormones and the endocrine system and blood in, in organs you know something to think about that the annual revenue of agricultural industry is 1.7 trillion dollars in the united states at the same time the profit of pharmaceutical industry is 3.2 trillion dollars a year it is an astronomical amount this is gonna bankrupt the countries like to have this, you know, um, healthcare for all is a pipe dream because, first of all, there isn't enough doctors, there's not enough healthcare providers, they're not really being uh, educated or have capacity to care for so many people. So, there absolutely should be an in innovators that would go into food and make food real food again. There is actually resources for those people. Uh, Dr. Robert Lastic out of uh, University of California, San Francisco, is having and supporting quite a few initiatives and he's taking it to Congress to regulate ultra-processed food. But what the entrepreneurs need to know is, and, and it doesn't have to be, um, you know, mutual exclusive they can still research um people can still research where you know the innovation needed you know for example somebody wants to make you know better pasta it's absolutely needed but they need to understand how would they go to market how would they take on the you know very well rooted establishment that can just buy them off for mm. for this reason uh, you know and I'm so, sure it's happened. I'm sure it's happened time and time again. So you have to have a certain personality. And I I hope I do. Mm. I haven't had a trial by fire with an immense amount of money. Uh, but, you know, my goal is to never sell. My goal is not to exit. I mm. want to create a legacy company that would challenge the establishment. So, you know, uh, and I have mentors and they tell me you just weren't offered 400 million dollars for your company yet 
And I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, if I'm offered 400 million, if I'm offered 1 billion, would I take it? The reason, the, the, the part of me really doesn't care about the money, which is why I would give advice and I would lead the people, you know, with, you know, helping them navigate the healthcare system and arm them with information and answer their question for free, just because I care. Mm. But I cannot also expect that there would be everybody who just as not focus on a profit as I am. Like I care about my people. I care about my employees. I mean, I care to have a good life, but you know, I own my house. I don't have a mortgage. Uh, like I took care of that. My family is okay. My husband has a plumbing business here in Houston. He's brilliant. He's absolutely just an incredible inventor and innovator. He created a lot of machinery for the chocolate. Just imagined it and put it together. And really, wow, yeah. And actually, he's he's a fascinating person to talk to. If you ever need another one, yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, I, I think, uh, yeah. Uh, not only but, would we but, need to get but, you but, back, but him as well for sure. But the truth of the matter is, we're really not chasing the money. And, but what we're cha chasing is an idea, is that curiosity of what if, can yeah. I change the world? Can we make the chocolate and then maybe another product and another that would really be unprocessed? Mm. You know, my dark chocolate, if you looked at, uh, um, at the ingredients, uh, the serving is third of the bar. So it's three servings. It's a big bar, it's 100 grams. Um, it has 11 grams of fiber per serving. A friendly reminder to share this episode with your network, subscribe for more and join the conversation in the comments. It really helps us out. Thank you. You literally will not find the food like that anywhere else in the world. Mm. And people need more fiber. And they need fiber that is not Metamucil, that they're just choking on it and they're drinking it. And yeah, it, they need it with food. We evolve biologically to solve our problems with the natural substances that we bring into our body. We, we evolved that way. Mm -hmm. And now we are sick because we're moving so much away from nature and into the factories, the the the, the production companies that our body doesn't know how to react anymore mm. it's interesting though because if you know i think we both are grown up enough if you will to understand why the industry went that direction right it, it i don't think it was at least personally I, I i think it's safe to say that it wasn't intentionally intentionally malicious or evil it was driven by profit yes but it was also driven by um, to some degree, just the demand, right? I mean, every everyone is to blame for the for the direction that the 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 industry went. Because exactly. if, if if you expect to get that fruit all year round, or always have fresh eggs, or always have milk, then then things need to happen in the process in order to make sure these things are always available. And this didn't just happen overnight. This happened over a very long period of time in order to get that. And so, you know, it's understandable. And food science. Um, wasn't as developed as it is now 
to for individuals like you to be able to fully understand the repercussions of this i mean at the time i'm sure they consulted scientists and and because of their limited information available they probably went yeah it would probably be okay right mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah just do it it's fine i'm sure it'll be fine you know um, and there's a minimal amount of accepted uh harmful outcome in these things right in the yes. same way in the same way that there's like a minimal amount of like uh rat feces that can go into food products or like a minimal amount of dead animals that can fall into products in factories like there's a minimal amount and and, and the problem is though it's not taking into consideration that if a minimal amount in one food item and a minimal amount of food in another food item it's all added together it compounds to be a really big fucking problem like that's the bro that's the thing we're, we're seeing right so correct and yeah. I don't disagree with you. And I, yeah. I think this is where we go back to those very powerful things I don't know. Mm. And once again, not uttered in the stupid, I don't know, like, leave me alone. But yeah. we're, we are pioneering this world. Mm. We don't know. Bear with us. Yeah. Maybe it would be great and maybe it would have effects down the line. But, you know, let's take... Either we decide to take that risk altogether, or we decide not to take that risk altogether. Exactly. So yeah. I don't. I don't disagree with you, and, and I think it just boils down very nicely to, you know, this conversation of innovation. What is innovation? How how do we feel about innovation? You know, I feel that, you know there's also a psychological moment about it, the expectations, because if you tell the general public that we know it's safe, and then it turns out that it's not, you have a huge amount of outrage. Um, you, you, you lose the um, trust of people. Nobody believes you anymore. You know, I, I really think that there is a beauty to say well, we invented this and this is what we observed and be transparent with it. And we haven't seen what it does in 20 years, but do you think it's worth mm. trying? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I often uh, refer to modern society as the MVP of the human race, right? It's mm -hmm. um, we're, we're, we're still prototype of what we could be. We're not quite there yet. And I think feeding humans is one of those things where we definitely haven't got it down to the way it should be or will be. Um, it's going to take a long time before we get there. This is just the first version of that infrastructure um, or the first you know, version of that global infrastructure, let's say. But it needs a lot of refinement, a lot of refinement to get better. Do you... Um, okay, so there's a couple of things I wanted to ask you about the things that you mentioned before as well. At one point, you mentioned that palm oil and vegetable oil is poison. What do you mean by that? So our body needs certain building blocks. And, you know, we think of it as macronutrient and micronutrient. And then all of the vitamins and minerals, which are also very, very, very important. But let's take macronutrient. Those are your fats, proteins, and carbohydrates. They are the major building blocks of everything in our body. So there, you know, there are certain, you know, fads that, you know, challenge the way the society was developing. Like, for example, in 1950s with Ansel Keys, who 
uh, exonerated the sugar and demonized the saturated fats, we now, 70 years later, having a society that is very vitamin D deficient and very um, estrogen and testosterone deficient. Mm. Hormone, hormones are out of whack, nearly everybody. Why? Because the very important part of both vitamin D and testosterone, or all of the hormones, are healthy fats. And people were afraid of eating butter, having real cream, you know, full fat, not half and half, not skim milk, you know, none of that. I had this very fun conversation with uh, one of the um, one of the doctors um, who is a big influencer, and um, we were discussing that with the vitamin D deficiency. You know, people say, "Oh, we don't have enough sunlight." Uh, this is why we're vitamin D deficient. Mm -hmm. But sunlight is just a physical actor on a substrate that turns into vitamin D. What is that substrate? Do you want me to tell you? Go ahead. Cholesterol. Right. If you don't have cholesterol in your body, you can put yourself full of solar panels and stay out on the sun all day and you still be vitamin D deficient. Right. But because cholesterol is is what the cholesterol is the molecule that changes the conformation when the photons or sun rays acting on it and turns into vitamin D. Vitamin D is not a vitamin. It's now called vitamin hormone D because it is involved in so many different aspects and you know what's really again, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, look it up. It's, uh -huh. it's it's there. It's 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 an endocrine factor. It's an immune system factor. It's 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 a bone density factor. It 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 just it's involved in the entire body function. So is so are all of the hormones, specifically mm -hmm. testosterone. It's called testosterone. Steric means it's a fat. So for hormones to be produced, there has to be a good amount of saturated fat that turns them through the biochemical processes into the final things. Why did I say that uh, hydrogenated vegetable oil was poison? Because they are not um, the proper fat molecules that are the right building blocks for the hormones and um, uh, other process in the body in the they, same way that you mentioned about cocoa fat or butter as being the the proper fats um where is one off. yeah right right if it's if it's uh not pressed especially if it's not pressed out and uh like filtered and mm. deodorized and put because you can put any substance through a process and get adverse reactions from it mm. I mean, th this is this is the science of chemistry. Chemistry is just, you know, your periodic table. And yeah. 
none of it is either good or bad. Like, I'm, I'm not saying that it is good or bad. I'm saying that within our system, it doesn't interact harmoniously. Because, mm. so before hydrogenation, when they got white and solid, they were liquid fats. They are liquid in at the room temperature. That means that they are polyunsaturated fats. That means that the bonds that keeps the molecule together have um, um, kinks in them, so to speak. They have double bonds in number of places. So they're not aligning themselves in, in a two-dimensional kind of ways, mm -hmm. one after the other they are messy this is why they are liquid and we can fry things on it but within our body um, if we are lacking the building blocks for the fats they are being used as those building blocks and if you think of the lego and you have one type of lego and then you bring kind of the crippled blocks and you start inserting it into like a building or a castle or i don't know the ship that you're building out of the proper Legos, it's going to start creating gaps. It's going to start creating um, instability. Mm. And when you have huge enough number of them, what's going to happen with your nice structure? Mm. And a break. Yeah. It's hugely complex, isn't it? And that's the thing I think that's so difficult for people to wrap their heads around is, you know, you know, I didn't know that about vitamin D, for example, that it's recently been, or maybe not so recently, but either way, been recategorized as a, as a hormone. Um, and and I think this is the thing that's so difficult for people to wrap their heads around, because, you know, even just the mention of uh, cholesterol, you know, everyone's been told all their lives to watch cholesterol and um, saturated and non-saturated fats and mind your intake and this, that and the other. And it's just, it's just overwhelming. Um, have you heard of a, a man called Brian Johnson? Uh, the 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 bit the millionaire out of um, California. Yes, I do. I yeah. I kind of follow his journey. It's fascinating to me. It is hugely interesting because he's taking this 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 approach of, I mean, with this experiment that he's doing, um, isn't he? To to sort of look at measuring every aspect of his health, with the goal of of, of maintaining youth and, and and all this guy, or just in general, just wanting to optimize his health. And he takes such a detailed approach to the, the level of, of every single molecule that his body ingests. And he's trying to find this perfect balance, basically, isn't he? Between of, of everything he you know, takes into his body, the perfect amount of sleep, you know, all these things. He's looking at every single factor. And he believes to have cracked the code to some degree on that. Um, but I mean, he's a, he's a millionaire. <laughs> He's got the yeah. time to do that, right? He also, he also gets uh, blood transfusions from his 16-year-old uh, son. Right. Okay. That's weird. Um, I mean, it is. So, yeah. I, I mean, like, regardless of how much I respect and a big part of longevity community, I would not want to put my beautiful daughter that I love and be like, okay, you are perfect, healthy. All of your system are working. Give me some of your like growth yeah, yeah. factors and blood. That's so like, I can, like, I yeah, just... that's kind of that's almost cultish, like vampiric kind of thing. Like you know, like people who bathe in the. He kind of looks like that. No, <laughs> yeah, that, it does. A bit. I, I, I really do respect <laughs> him and like him, 
Uh, I yeah. like his journey. I mean, it's interesting to me as a scientist, but he does kind of look like a vampire. Yeah, if it, if it revealed that his secret was the fact that he actually drank human blood, I wouldn't be surprised. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, absolutely. Um, but but my point is, you can totally see why for the for the layman, you know, looking at this kind of stuff, it's just like, oh, fucking out. Like, you know, like I, I've been looking a lot at the um, uh, the paleo diet or carnival diet um, mm -hmm. as as a concept because that's really gaining a lot of attention recently, mostly thanks to Jordan Peterson and his daughter um, talking about how it's relieved them of a lot of their health issues, just, just going to a carnival diet. Like, what's your thoughts on that? Because a, a keto diet and a paleo diet and a, a, and a carnival diet, I mean, they're all kind of like in the same family, really, right? They are to a degree, right? From what my understanding, I don't, I don't claim to be an expert on this, so maybe you can educate me there. I stand by um, a great influence um, that I like, and, and that's um, Dr. Robert Lastic. And I right. agree with him on um, the statement that he made that any food that uh, any approach, any, let's call it diet, diet is anything we ingest. We just call them, you know, fads or diets, mm. but that's involved in eating real food, food that looked like something that was growing or walking right. would be good for us because we evolved eating you know foraging and hunting uh unprocessed or minimally processed right because cooking is also processing whether you're mm. like grilling or you're frying or it, it's it's also processing so mm -hmm. and then when you start thinking of that types of processing if you're for example sauteing something what are you sauteing on are you sauteing on uh say um Coconut butter that is uh, uh, more unsaturated and therefore solid, or are you sauteing on, uh, for example, grapeseed oil, which is great in withstanding high temperatures, but it went through all of the, you know, extraction and deodorization and things like that. I I, I read a lot of things on them, and I. Um, I read somewhere, which uh, I can't confirm whether it's true, but maybe you will tell me that uh, chefs like vegetable oils that were processed and deodorized because it doesn't add additional flavor yes, to yeah. the foods that they're cooking. And so they control the notes that, um, you know, they mm. want their... Exactly. You, you, you want your, your oil literally just to be a function. It's, it's yeah. a tool. Yeah, and not not to really be yeah, which which I think is a mistake. Uh, you know, it's an opportunity to actually add something, and it's yeah. being missed. Yeah, I I agree with you, but but you know if if you think like if 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 the majority of chefs think that that I mean chefs are creators, they mm. create an art of food. Food is the music you can taste, right? Mm. I, I I like to think that about chocolate as well. Uh, then there is a demand to innovate that product to give the chefs the canvas that they're looking for, right? Mm, yeah. Um, so it's interesting because I actually, when it comes to oil, I actually take a lot of inspiration from Mediterranean or Italian cuisine, uh -huh. where where olive oil 
is the center of the focus there because of and maybe you you would have additional information i'm not aware of but from my understanding olive oil is probably the one of the best oils to cook with um because of as long as it is you know you know natural and it's organic and it's you know it's not not that well uh, not too heavily processed simply because it i mean a it adds flavor depending on the type of olive oil you get just like you would do with with wine you can mm -hmm. you know you know get all different kinds all different reserves and, and things like that um but also um it, it forces you to cook in a slightly different way because it doesn't do well with high temperatures really good oil olive oils yeah and it forces you to innovate a little bit more in the way that you cook which which then hopefully results in a, in a better outcome health wise but i don't know what your thoughts are on olive oil uh i love olive oil mm. but raw yeah i don't yeah. hear it right yeah as, as the moment it heated just under the smoke points all of those bonds within the molecules they start being unstable and right. that's where it starts getting pro-inflammatory right so it's interesting you say that because of the, the probably the most money i spend on any food item is the olive oil i use for salads and other things so so for salads not, and other things yeah, yeah so, and, and it's cooking. actually because I, I, I'm right there with you. I, I yeah. spent a very pretty dollar on the olive oil that's bitter, yeah. that smells. It has to have the, um, the, 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 the the settlement. Yeah, 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 the settlement in it. Yeah, yeah. And and it's also the same, um, same happens for avocado oil. Avocado right. oil, smelly, dirty, like not transparent. Mm. phenomenal for health as far as cooking goes if i need to fry something and as i said there is a lot of people who may yell and scream and i would just say to each their own mm. um uh i would cook on coconut uh oil because mm. it has a very high um tolerance for temperatures and I would cook on uh, like duck fat and uh, ghee and things like, like that. Actual, actual animal fat. Actual yeah. animal fat. And, and, that, and that's very much the, the rules with the carnivore diet, isn't it? It's like animal fats, um, butter and meat. And that's pretty much it. The only reason that I am not on the carnivore and I prefer keto is Carnivore doesn't allow you to eat anything that grows. And yeah. we need to eat plants. Mm. We need plant polyphenols. Um, I mean, if I were carnivore, I can't eat chocolate. That would be horrible. Mm. But, what, 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 why, why leave if you can't eat chocolate? <laughs> although although have you ever tried red meat or certain certain meats with chocolate sauce i have not but you so, my curiosity so it's actually quite amazing i've worked as, as you know i worked as a chef and there were a few dishes that i've cooked and also come up with um that where yeah certain certain chocolate based sauces and every chocolate sauce are different just like you've got different chocolates mm -hmm. um work with different types of meats duck for example works really well with chocolate um beef works insanely well with chocolate um i've even seen it where you know just a nice steak 
with grated dark chocolate on the top as a, as a seasoning. Chocolate in cuisine itself as a as both an ingredient and also a seasoning, incredibly yeah. incredibly diverse. But yeah, actually, chocolate based sauces go incredibly well with with red meats primarily. I, and get, and get. I'm gonna try it and I'm gonna let you know how it worked out. Give it a go. You have to do a bit of experimentation, obviously, to get the right the right sort of flavor. But I, I feel like that's probably in your wheelhouse to do that. <laughs> at the time, you know, I um, I I love. Um, I mean, I I love certain microgreens. I love salad. Me too. Me too. I love salad. I don't think that's why I could ever do the the carnivore diet. I, I, I love, love tomatoes. Vegetables. And, and tomatoes have also polyphenols and different um i mean i love berries i'm allowed right. to have berries because they are a lot less glycemic so i right. i would eat like um blackberries and blueberries and very occasionally raspberries but once so, again so fructose isn't isn't like it, it is allowed it is permissive permissive no i mean no so it's it's all carbs from all sources right but that's the difference of berries from fruits they're actually a lot lower on fructose and oh, really? okay. they they have a lot more of other alternative sugars that are not metabolic like things like allulose and other rare i mean it, it, any natural product is like a conglomeration of all of those different things and they mm. and and plus it has fiber right so there is a difference in metabolism of if a person would eat an apple or a person would eat an apple juice. So nature never gives poison without a remedy. Mm -hmm. So the remedy for sugar to mitigate the insulin spikes is fiber. Fiber blunts them. That's and plus I, I don't think I've ever heard it put so eloquently as that nature never gives poison without the remedy. That's such an eloquent way of putting it. And everybody thought I mean, of it like even, it. even if we think about the pharmaceutical, right? Let's take aspirin. Aspirin was isolated out of the willow bark. Mm. And although aspirin is generally recognized as safe, it, it, it can sometimes cause um, like in stomach ulcers or stomach bleeding. But there are cultures when they just grate the willow bark and take mm. that for fever and pain, and they don't get the same result as mm. that pure isolated acetylsalicylic acid. Mm. So we have to think of foods, that's how I feel, in the wholesome way, the way it's evolved. Because even, you know, the selected foods with you know, specific traits and qualities and, you know, increased sweetness. Um, they're still better with the fiber that comes along with it because it's still healthier. Because mm. if, if you juice them, it's just sugar and water that's in there. And now the fiber is gone. It's yeah. metals on the, um, on the filter. Mm. What, one last question on this topic, and then I've got one other question to ask you, and then I'll let you go if that's okay. <laughs> um, because, that's fine. Because, because, because I know we started a bit later, so if that's okay, yeah. we'll go, go a little bit. But, no, no um, I still have time. Well, good, thank you. Um, but uh, yeah, so so let let's assume then. Um, well, let's talk about this diet. So so you know, keto, just focusing on on meats, healthy but animal sort of fats or 
or, mm -hmm. or real fats from from plants and plants right so so just going back to like you said re eat real food as as um uh, robert uh lustig talks about um the problem there for a lot of people then is well where is that food coming from because still plants are like you, we talked about, you know, they're 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 still being processed. Even even mm -hmm. plants are being processed. They're still getting sprayed, and you can go organic, and there's even issues there. Um, and then we also have animals that are being pumped full of uh, antibiotics and steroids. So, so how do individuals even make the healthy choice within the healthy choice? Like what? And 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 also bearing in mind, money plays a huge factor in this. You know, we're not talking about the vast majority of the population can't afford organic, right? Um, at least not for their entire food shop, even though organic is getting better priced. Um, they can't go to their local farm shop and, and source all their ingredients. Like, they just need to be able to get stuff off the shelf. So, so where does that leave the everyday consumer for being able to make these sort of the right choices here? You know, this is a million dollar question. Mm -hmm. Is now that you have that knowledge, how to apply them to actually have a quality change. Mm. Um, it's not easy, but what I found now that my entire family is um, on, I mean, as I said, I love to cook. Cooking mm. is something that I truly enjoy doing. And so it has never been, you know, not home cooked meals. Mm. Um, but it has it has not it it hasn't always been um, you know really really healthy home cooked meals. Yeah. Like for example, my daughter she is not. A, I would not put her on any kind of limit limitations. Hmm. Like, of course, she doesn't eat McDonald's. She doesn't drink Coca Cola, but. She can eat any amount of fruits, vegetables, um, berries, seeds, good, um, you know, whole wheat pasta, you know, semolina, and of course, meats. So we eat a lot of meat. We eat a lot of lamb. We have, we eat a lot of um, beef. Um, lamb is because I'm from the mountains of Caucasus and lamb is... Um, what we traditionally always ate over there. And lamb is absolutely delicious. <laughs> you know, and it's always sad for me because when people uh, mention blue zones and like Oceania and Sardinia, and uh, I think there is one other, they never mention the Caucasus. Maybe mm. because it's in Russia. Right. But Caucasus has been known for people majority of the population living well into their hundreds. Both of my grandmothers died. One died when she was 103 and the other died when she was 107. Wow. Uh, and, you know, um, I've, I've only gone back to visit my home place once, uh, actually in 2021. Uh, but I decided to find all of those people who at least, you know, if, if they're still alive. And I remember as a child, we used to go to the mountains to this little old lady. Her name was Maria. And she was old back then. She was like in her mid 80s. And she would have cattle and she would milk the cows. And every evening we would get a jar of fresh milk, raw, 
mm. warm from right under the cow, just from her and drink that. And I came to the place where she was living and I said, is she still alive? Now, this is 23 years later. Mm. So she is probably breaking hundreds, maybe 99. And they're like, yeah, she lives where she used to live, still has the cows. Mm. You know, like, you know, once again, real food, unprocessed. Uh, where do you find that? You know, a lot of people started to have their own farms, grow chickens. Uh, probably, you know, food industry doesn't like it. Mm. Probably they are not uh, being advertised. But, you know, my motto in life is if there is a will, there is a way. Mm. So, for example, here in Houston, I know every farm that sells raw milk. Do they advertise? Of course not. But there are communities on Facebook and, you know, probably on WhatsApp and Telegram and, you know, all of those local apps. When people are, people who are seeking healthy food, they can find it. Because, you know, when I was pregnant with my daughter, especially because all of her systems were developing. I was very cautious about everything I ate. Mm. And, you know, uh, drinking raw milk didn't scare me. Uh, I know I've, that- I've heard some really, really mixed things about that. I've heard some some scientists make, you know, be very scared about the, the, popular, the rise in popularity of raw milk because it's apparently got, you know, some real health concerns there about but that. why are they scared um i'm not entirely sure i mean you know I, I, i'm not so that's a good question yeah so but I, i've heard i've heard about that just just basically that the, the pasteurization process is is there for a reason that and it's not necessarily that new uh in terms of a form of processing and yes. that it's a very important way of making sure that the what we're consuming is is safe because there's a, there's a lot of natural elements from what i understand in in raw safe. milk that can be quite dangerous to humans uh yes there can be some bacteria mm. usually farmers check for it and they have a log and you like they actually send the milk to the lab or there is a person from the lab who comes and who checks for it right and you can ask for the log and to see how much of what per part is in that milk uh every but, but like you said every food every natural food will have uh, uh, its own antidote to its own poison right so exactly the thing is we have a huge part which if you want to have part two to this i would love to talk to you about and that's called microbiome yes yeah microbiome yeah. usually fascinating yeah is the center of our health mm. microbiome can be protective of cancer protective of uh inflammation or can accelerate it mm. and the thing about microbiome we are more bacteria than we are human they outnumber our cells 10 to 1. Mm. and the first question always should be how did they get there babies are born sterile they come out of the mother's womb 
they are in an enclosed facility, they have no microbiome. They need to be exposed to the bacteria over time. But they should be, because yeah. otherwise, you know, babies who live, kids who live in extremely sterile environment where moms just like Cloroxes everything, mm. are more likely to develop early childhood diseases and specific cancers, including leukemia. Why? Because they don't have bacteria to protect them. How do they get it? Kids should eat dirt. Yeah, through the environment. It's funny because I, I, when I was a kid, I had I was very, very seriously asthmatic um, to the point where um, I stopped, my heart stopped and I stopped breathing um, after an asthma attack in hospital. I was clinically dead for a couple of minutes oh um, when I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, they, they managed to bring me back somehow. And then for a long period of time, I was on a, a very long course of steroids um, on a machine that helped me with breathing and all sorts of stuff that I had to take home. And one of the things that my mother at the time, bearing in mind this is in the 80s, um, she was being advised by the doctors to do was to clean the house nonstop. Dust mites. That was the issue. Dust mites. Dust everywhere. So clean everything, clean everything, clean everything. And when I had this, this attack, even though she'd been following all the advice, um, she she was like, well, this clearly isn't fucking working. She was like, the, the problem isn't that. The problem is the opposite. The house yeah. is too clean. He's exactly. not building up a tolerance. He's getting worse. It's not getting better. So she was like, do you know what? I'm stopping doing that. You know, I'm, I'm not going to do it anymore. And lo and behold, over the next year or so, I started being able to fight it on my own. To this day, never had to use a, uh, you know, a, an inhaler or anything i did for a little bit but then as i became a teenager um i i didn't have to anymore you know so well, yeah there's so a lot of truth to that's that. that's actually your story is a testament or at least one of the challenges to hypothesis of you know over pasteurization right. pasteurized food although safe and somewhat nutritious still is dead food because but I suppose, are... but I suppose it's important if you've pumped your cattle full of 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 antibiotics and various different Correct. chemicals, because because now actually you're not you know, to removing the natural phenomenon. You're now removing the potentially lethal phenomenon that you've introduced in order Correct. to increase increase milk production to prevent diseases amongst cows all shoved in together and. All this kind but, of thing, but, right? but you know, there's plenty of farms with grass fed cows who right. has never been injected. And as I said, this is becoming more and more popular here in Texas. And you can see them grazing. So they usually milk them at around 5 30 in the evening. And then, mm. you know, maybe like 7 30 in the morning. We never make it that early in the morning because we all like to sleep. But uh, <laughs> when we usually get our milk is the evening. And when my daughter got a little older, when she was like three, we would go there earlier because she could see, you know, that large pasture, they're all grazing. They're, they're actually not inside ever. They don't mm. even sleep inside. They only like walked in one by one to be milked and then just escorted it out. And mm. I think those humane practices where, you know, chickens or cows or, you know, lamb, they roam free, they graze. And then, you know, we, we ask the farmers once again, um, you know, are there antibiotics? People in the lab, which I used to do for fun when I was younger, I would take foods and I would put it into mass spectrometer. 
um, a specialist for bot food. I found so many interesting insights. I can imagine, so yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, once again, eggs, their farms with free roaming chicken who are not just fed corn and bulked up, but, you know, they go and they pick on grass and the chickens are omnivores. They need mm. to eat bugs. They need to eat grass. They, they can eat their own eggshells if you mm. take the eggs and you throw the c compost. Um, who grow naturally, they're a lot skinnier and leaner, but uh, they lay eggs. And if you have this amber orange yolk, you know that it's chicken that is doing what chicken is supposed to do. Mm. And I suppose it makes sense, right? I mean, at the end of the day, if we're, if we're talking about the things that we're putting into our body and what we're consuming to ensure that we've got a balanced existence and to fight potential health concerns, well, then it makes sense that we should be concerned with what the animals that we are consuming are consuming. It's a chain and it needs to make sure that we're aware of that entire chain and it starts with everything, right? It starts with the sun and, and works its way around um, through, you know, through photos, photosynthesis and into living beings and but, but, but going back to how, you know, so once again, I believe that if it exists in Houston, which is the fourth largest city in US, mm. it very likely exists around a lot of the major. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But the problem and, is just accessibility and price. That's the problem. But the thing is, that's a myth because I know now I get my beef from the from another farmer so i get my milk down south which is an hour drive and i get my beef up north which is an hour drive mm. the slaughterers uh the the the, the, the people who the, the farmers who slaughter their own uh, beef and you know lamb they actually have they are in the groups on facebook and you know specifically this one uh farm the lady is on Facebook. There is a group. She announces like, okay, we're going to slaughter two cows on such and such date. You guys tell me which cuts you want and how much, mm. and we will reserve it for you. You're going to drive down. The, it's actually cheaper. It's like we pay eight, nine dollars a pound for, you know, grass fed, freshly slaughtered. Uh, beef, so I, I usually get either ribeye or New York steak. I, I eat my meat with as much fat as possible. Um, I mean, the cheapest I can get it at the store is eleven ninety nine in Costco. Mm. The problem is it's inconvenient. Yeah, you have yeah. to get in a car and you have to drive. So mm. usually, what we do, not to do it every two weeks, is um, we coordinate with some friends and one time I go pick up the meat for and, and she comes to my house and one time she goes picks up the meat. So mm. we make it only one time travel a month. Yes, inconvenient. Yes, you can be playing video games or, you know, watching TV, but then well, I think I think for 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 the average family, it's not even that. It's you know the average family trying to make ends meet. I mean, not even thinking about single parents, but like just the average family. Um, 
you know, can be working sometimes more than one job to make ends meet, maybe still not even managing to make ends meet, uh, you know, multiple mouths to feed, you know, rent that's going up, electricity bills going up, like everything is a struggle. And when there is time to do the food shop, which is, you know, maybe, you know, if, if they are cooking fresh from home, which is a whole other topic in it itself, yeah. which people aren't doing enough of, but even if they are confident enough and have the skills to do that, when they do have time to finally go out and do the food shop, they don't have time to go to multiple stores, let alone multiple locations across different geographies. I'm fortunate enough that I have the skill set of cooking at home, as do you, and I prioritize the food shop in a way where I will go to different stores mm -hmm. because if I want to get the best that I can. But even I would say I could probably make the time, but I definitely don't have the time right now to a research the farms near to me and, and this and the other, and then go to them and, and do all that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I probably could, but that I would be sacrificing something else in my life in order but, to do that. And and right. right yeah, and right now for me that equals money and that that pays for the food in the first place that my family can eat. And so I know I'm in a privileged posi position already. The you know the vast majority of the general public, you know, the average person, you know, there's so many challenges to this. And, you know, even knowing how to cook, like I said, is the first one. That's the first barrier. And then it's and then it's like the next one and the next one and the next one. And, and I think that's where the problem is. We we trust that the choices we are presented in the supermarkets are the yeah. best ones. And it shouldn't be on us to, to, to figure that out. It should be on the people presenting us with the choices that they are the good choices, you know? I think that's the issue, isn't it? But look, I, I feel like we could we could talk about this forever. So <laughs> I'm gonna, if you don't mind, one last quick question, and then I'm gonna let you go because I have to ask you about this. And there's the the, the cancer treatment that you developed that you invented. Um, what stage is that at? Because you said that you you were fortunate enough to be able to take advantage of that for yourself. But is this available oh. to the general public? Is it still going through trials? Like what, what's going on with that? It's 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 done with trials. MD Anderson is actively uses it, as far okay. as I know. Um, I, my cancer was discovered fairly early at the stage two B. Right. Uh, the reason it was discovered early is the manifestation was a very very clear. It was tumors that that came from each um, hair follicle. So I was all covered in tumors, my back, my arms, and they were white and they were raised. Right. And so um, I was like, and, and, and um, yeah, I, I had a fever and my lymph nodes were swelling and going and swelling and going for about two months. I couldn't break a fever for two months. And so I went in and they took a biopsy and it was what it was. Um, you know, immunotherapy is a very powerful tool. Why? Because it gives the chance of person's own immune system to fight the infection. Mm. So it's not an outside uh, compound like chemotherapy, which is a chemical drug. This is why it's called chemo or radiation. Basically, what happens in immunotherapy, at least it, with the peptibodies, with the, with the therapy I invented, that prior to going for the treatment, a person gets the 
it gets hooked up to a blood machine and it isolates all of their T cells. So you you hooked up from both veins and from one side it's going and it's isolating T cells only and then everything else is getting returned to you through the other mm. side. So um, that way they can isolate millions, hundreds of millions of T cells. And then what happens with those T cells, since you have parts of your tumors already removed, they are put in this large bioreactor. So all of this is a closed system. So the, the um, electrophoresis, uh, sorry, um, hemophoresis machine is hooked up to the next machine and to the next machine. And so they go into this bioreactor where they are introduced to pieces of the tumor to essentially develop a low key, develop a receptor to attack that mm. tumor. And at the same time, a person gets an injection of those peptibodies, which brings that, it, it, the scientific term for it is uh, suppressive tumor microenvironment. But because it literally looks like a circle, like a halo around the tumor on the, um, on the imagery, on the imaging, when we image the slices, I like to say it's, it's a fortress. It's like this wall and it yeah. renders T cells inactive. Uh, so once they gave the injection of the peptibodies, it, it takes them just about 48 hours to act. Wow, that's incredibly quick. So it is very quick. They bring down the tumor defense system and then at that point, right about at that, like right before that, maybe at 40 hours, you get reinfused with all of those T cells that were now primed uh, against the tumor. And mm -hmm. they go everywhere, they go into every blood vessel and everywhere they see that combination where they, that they just chemically experienced in the bioreactor, uh, it's called adaptive T cell transfer. Mm -hmm. They go and they, kill those cells and you know it's actually very cool to see if you go on youtube and uh you type in activated t-cell killing cancer cell they they do videos of it how they move and they find the cancer cell and they yeah I, i've actually seen it. that yeah it's, it's fascinating it is you know just like the, to me there is also a um mental component of beating cancer so mm -hmm. like uh when i was going through that every night i would just visualize how those t cells just finding cancer cells all over and they get mm -hmm. attached and they release all of those um uh, interferon gamma and all of those uh, uh the compounds that dissolve the cancer cell and um it's like yeah I, I i see how it happens you're seeing it all play out inside of yeah you. exactly yeah so so essentially what your treatment is doing is kind of not only retraining the t-cells by introducing an element of the tumor to them but also re-equipping them with the tools yeah. in order to, to actually to, to hit down that barrier in the first place and and get in and do their job so so, so yeah so it's aimed at eliminating t-cell exhaustion by mm. not having the factors that renders them inactive and yeah, incapable yeah, in of um, doing its its role. 
Yeah, well, it's it's fascinating. So, so this is this is a a therapy that is now available through through the organization. I know MD Anderson is actively using it. Yeah. Maybe there are others. Maybe I mean, my my uh, principal investigator, my mentor, went to City of Hope. I would probably not be unheard of if mm. um, it's used there and a few other places as well. Uh, since I graduated in uh, 2010. Uh, and, and I went into industry, I kind of lost the track. The, the only time I'm expected to hear about um, this invention is if they decide to sell it. Because right. as an inventor, I own like 15% of the patent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because the way it works in um, academic institutes, the the, the the university owns 70% and then whatever the rest is divided between the inventors and since uh I own 70% that's crazy yeah. so wow. uh another fun things we can explore is when you're in like when you have a job at the university scientific or not you have to be very careful in inventing anything because mm you have to read the laws but more often than not even if you do it in your garage and it has nothing to do with your job just by having a job at the university entitles them to own your invention as long as you're working for them mm. and it's uh, very interesting and upsetting to me and it, uh, this is why I was not affiliated with any company. I was actually, I, I quit uh, mm. before I started inventing the chocolate because uh, it is trade secret protected and uh, I don't want anybody else to hold that patent for me. Yeah. Uh, but there are the whole organizations and I've met them through a conversation with like investors and VCs and things like that that an inventor of, for example, medical device or certain technology licenses their invention to this organization because they are working within the hospital. They do it somehow legally that the inventor would eventually own it. But right now it's like this intermediate company is an inventor. So right. the university will not take an invention that somebody did because they needed to have a job mm, that's a lot of loopholes to jump through isn't it that's um yeah we look we're, we're definitely gonna have to do part two of this because there's so many more things i wanted to ask you about the time when you're working with coronavirus the burnout you experienced there the disillusion with the, the sort of corporate side of things and the political politicization of medicine and science and that's hugely interesting too and then of course more about chocolate and all sorts of stuff and the gut biome and everything so we're definitely gonna have to book in part two but I actually need to go off and cook dinner. Yeah. <laughs> so, Enjoy. Yeah. Sounds like so, fun. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, I'm, I've definitely got some stuff from this I'm going to take away and apply, I think, to the way that I, I cook dinner and, and see if I can, yeah, just maybe spend a bit more time on it. I, I do try and think about these things and dedicate some time every now and then to improving our diet incrementally. Can't do it all at once. But yeah. I think I think it's kind of long overdue for me to sit down and think a bit more strategically about our diets. Uh, in our home so i'm gonna i'm gonna this is gonna be my call to action to do that a little bit more i think uh, maybe this coming weekend so i appreciate that 
Um, Anytime. And if you have any questions, feel free to text me or email oh, me. Oh, yeah. And, and so that's ready. the thing. If I can, like, leave everybody on this one last message, mm. it doesn't have to be a huge change all at once. You don't right. have to, like, ditch everything you used to buy and just try to find it. Like, change one. One little things that you can afford. That would, And it would just... And then... A month later or whenever it's comfortable change another one make it a habit mm. because the, the 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 road is walked by every little step at the time yeah. and i think it would be beneficial to health even if the small improvements are made over time start with chocolate and go from there absolutely <laughs> and you've got that covered so that's fantastic well look, thank you again so much it's been really really fascinating speaking with you and we definitely have more to talk about and um yeah like i mentioned at the beginning i'll include the links to your profile um in the description and to, to the website for so people can go and buy some of your chocolate and, and try it i still haven't bought any yet i need to get some um and try it because i'm very very curious and uh and I need a healthier option because I'm putting on too much weight as well. So, uh, so I'll, I'll be ordering some for sure. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for joining me. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. I look forward to part two. Likewise, likewise. Have a lovely day, rest of the week. Enjoy. Uh, yeah, thank enjoy you. your week. And uh, we'll be in touch soon to catch up. Thank you. Enjoy Cheers. dinner. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Take care. Thank you for watching and or listening. Please like subscribe and join the conversation in the comments below.